2 Timothy uh, chapter 4. I've been praying pretty hard about a message uh, for today and uh, some things that the Lord would have me to to share with you. And uh, there were a lot of different passages that I kind of prayed over and looked at, um, but I just kept being brought back to this particular passage in 2 Timothy Timothy chapter 4. Now, I want you to know before we start that this this passage... um, in all of scripture, it, it um, means so much to me. Um, on July the 26th, 1996, I surrendered to the ministry at False Creek. I can remember, I remember the day. I remember who was there. I remember where I was sitting. I remember my biggest fear. My sister could probably tell you about that. Um, I, I can remember all of that. But during that day, this passage of Scripture is what the Lord kept bringing me to. And, and all day long, um, I, I can remember sitting in a chair in the little lobby area of our False Creek cabin. And I, only, I sat there, it, for me, it only felt like maybe 15 minutes, m- maybe 30, not, not long. Um, but the whole time I was sitting in that chair, I just kept this, just this word just kept coming to my, just over and over, and it was one word, and it was simply the word ministry, and it was just constant, ministry, 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 and, and, and like I said, I sat there for maybe what I thought was 15 or 30 minutes, I got up, and I went to talk to my youth pastor and tell him uh, that I think the Lord might be calling me to the ministry, and I went and found him, and he was upstairs in our dorm room, and, and I'll never forget him uh, and I told him, and he said, well, I wondered what God had been working on your heart. You've been sitting over there for an awful long time today. And I said, I only sat there for like 15 or 30 minutes. He said, Dwayne, you've, you've been sitting there for almost four hours. He said, uh, it's dinner time. I sat there the whole break in that one chair, and that word was over and over. And that night, during, um, after our in-cabin Bible study, we got in our little family groups, and at that moment, um, I, I surrender to the ministry of the Lord. And this is the passage that God has brought me back to throughout the last 20 years of my ministry. Um, in, in good times and hard times, this is the passage that God has brought me back to. And, and I have a word for it today, and it's not, it's not, I mean, I'm not saying the word's not for me, but there's some things in this that I think we all need to hear as a church. And so to kind of give you an idea of why, I'm going to do something with you this morning that the speaker did for us at False Creek, but I'm going to change it a little bit, okay? Now, this is an interactive thing, okay? So I need you to participate or you won't understand, okay? So at False Creek, the the pastor asked everybody in the room, he said, how many of you here have have been saved that you've been called to salvation where where God, through the Holy Spirit, has convicted you of your sin, you've realized you're a sinner, so you've repented of your sin, you've placed your faith in Christ. How many of you have experienced the call to salvation? Now, if you're here, raise your hand if you've experienced This is what we did at False Creek. Now, leave them up, leave them up. He said, now, how many of you have been called to the ministry? How many of you have been called to the ministry? And then he said this question, and this is where I'm going to change it. He said, how many of you were called to evangelism? And he said mission, so I changed it to evangelism. And the exact same thing happened at False Creek that just happened here this morning. Now, let's try this again. No matter what I say, okay, no matter what I say, let's do it again. Okay, 
How many of you here have been called to salvation? You know that, but you don't shout it out. Now, no matter what else I say, don't, don't lower your hand. No matter what I say. How many of you have been called to ministry? How many of you have been called to evangelism? That's the correct answer. I want to put, have you put your hands down. You see, the thing is, yes, I believe that there is a call on the lives of ministers. That's a special calling. And the reason why I know that is because in Ephesians chapter 4, the Word of God tells us that God gifted to the church gifts of people. And these are pastors, prophets, preachers, teachers, um, evangelists. These are gifts that God gives the church in order to help them grow spiritually so that they can accomplish the ministry the church has. And so what's happened, though, over the years is ministry has kind of been relegated to those that have what we call a quote-unquote call to ministry on their lives. But the truth of the matter is, every born-again believer in Christ has been called to ministry. And more specifically, every believer born again in Christ is called to evangelism. And this morning, our text is going to point out some things that I think we all need to hear so that we can do as the text says, and that is so that we can fulfill our ministry. So if you have your Bibles open with me, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1, and then we're going to read down through verse 8. The Word of God says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths, but as for you, Exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is reserved for me in uh, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all of those who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. God, I pray today that you would bless the reading of your word, and now as we examine it this morning, I pray that I would decrease and that your spirit living in me would increase and that the words would be shared today would not be my words, but your words, and uh, they will find the place you have for them in the hearts and lives of your people, and that, Father, we would respond however you lead us to respond when we engage with you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, in this text, there are, there are really four things that I want to point out to us so that we can all fulfill our ministry. Because we all have a ministry, but all of our ministries are a little bit different. Um, some people are called into church roles, church staff. Some are called to, 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 to be deacons and, and servants within the church. Some are called to be Sunday school teachers. Some are called to be lay uh, lay church members whose ministry is in their workplace or in the school or wherever they go or in their families. But make no mistake, if you're here and you're a Christian, then you have a ministry. 
Every one of us have a ministry, and God has a desire for us to fulfill that ministry. Uh, scripture tells us that, that God's desire is for all of us who are saved to be able to fulfill the good works that he had prepared in advance for us to do. And so God has something for each of us to do, but many times we fall short of achieving that because we don't quite comprehend some of these things that Paul tells Timothy. And in this text, I want to point them out to you because I think they mean something to us as well. And these are some ways in which we, we need to do, some things we need to do in order to fulfill our ministry. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the charge, and that's found in verse 2. The charge to ministry is found in verse 2. He says, I charge you... Therefore, to preach the word, to preach the word, that's the charge. Now, it would be easy for somebody to take this text and say, well, you know, he's talking to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor, so this text really only relates to the pastors. It doesn't really relate to me individually. Well, that's only if you look at one verse of Scripture and you forget that just before this, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Verses 16 and 17, Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, correcting, and for rebuking and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. So all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's all useful to all of us. And we also need to remember that no matter that Paul's talking to Timothy here, who's a pastor, the commission to preach the Word goes all the way back to Jesus in Matthew 28. You see, if we take that stance that this text only is for the pastors, then you have to take in Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission, go ye therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, making disciples, that, that which we call the Great Commission, then you would have to take the stance that that text is only related to the disciples. But see, none of us would do that. And the reason why is because we know that every disciple in Christ is called to be a disciple maker, to take the mission, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul talked about it to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, that the Christians have been given the ministry of reconciliation. He has given that to us. That is our responsibility. And so we all have the same charge to preach the word. Now, I want you to notice something about that. It's very specific what we're to preach. The word. We're to preach the word. Now, there, I've been asked before, how come I don't preach a lot on politics? I will tell you. God didn't call me to preach politics. God called me to preach the word. I don't, and we shouldn't be preaching opinions. Because we're not called to preach our opinions. We're called to preach the word. Some would say, well, you need to preach. We need, you know, in our culture today, we're all divided. We need to start preaching tolerance. Some would say, no, that's why we are divided, because we're too tolerant. So we need to preach intolerance. I wasn't called to preach tolerance or intolerance. I was called to preach the word. That's very specific, and there's a reason for that. Only the word of God can save. Years ago, and I think, I know I've said this here, but uh, there was a guy named Sir Francis of Assisi. I just call him Assisi because, but he made this statement. In everything you do, preach the gospel. And when necessary, use words. 
You can't preach the gospel without words. Now, you can preach lifestyle choices without words. But there's nothing in our actions that tell people they're a sinner, they need a Savior, that Savior is Jesus, and they have to repent and place their faith in Jesus. You can't do that with your actions. That is a mouth thing. As a matter of fact, Paul would say it in Romans 10, how can anyone be saved unless they are preached to? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? Anybody know? Hearing by what? The word of God. So we're called to preach the word. When we leave this place, no matter who you are, whether or not you're ever going to stand in a pulpit or not, you as a believer are called to preach the word. And that takes not only our actions, but it takes our words. We have to preach the word of God to the people that we meet. That's the charge. All of us are called to do that because only the word of God has the power to transform into salvation. I love the way the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is alive sharper than any two-edged sword that cuts directly through the thoughts and the intentions of the heart all the way down to the morrow of who we are. It cuts through all of that. You know, we, we, we go out and we're trying to win people this by convincing them that this is wrong or that's wrong or this is wrong. And, and those things may be wrong, but if you don't line it up with God's word, then you're just arguing with people. We need to tell them the word of God. And, and, and I had this conversation with a student a few years back. He came back and he kept trying to visit with me about homosexuality. And we were, we were kind of in this conversation. And I, kept, I, I finally had to stop him and say, but you're, he, he was trying to back me in a corner by getting me to say that homosexuality was a sin so he could argue that. And I said, but you're missing the whole point. It's not necessarily that homosexuality is a sin. The point is everyone's a sinner. And everyone's sin is different. And it's, it's not about whether or not homosexuality is a sin or not a sin. It's the fact that they're a sinner. And the only God can save them through repentance and faith. And we need to let God convict them of their sin, not of one sin. Not of this sin or that sin or the things we don't like or the things we do like. We need to let the Holy Spirit convict them of all sin. What did the Bible tell us the Holy Spirit was going to do? Convict the world of sin. Not of necessarily specific sin. The point is people need to know they're a sinner at the core of who they are, no matter who they are, no matter how that manifests itself. Every one of us are just a sinner, and it manifests itself differently. And, but until they come to the point of understanding they're a sinner, how in the world can they respond to the gospel offer of salvation? And so we can sit there and argue right, wrong, indifference, but if we're not lining it up with the Word of God, and the Word of God simply says, it doesn't matter who you are and what you do, you're a sinner. But God loves you anyway. And we have to understand that if we're going to preach the Word. We have to understand that no matter who we encounter, no matter what they've done, God loves them. And that's hard for some people. Because we have our pet sins that we really don't like. And so we tend to forget that God still loves those people. And he still sent Jesus to die for those people. And so we have to preach the word of God to them, not our opinions, not tolerance, not intolerance, not politics. Preach the word. That's the first charge. Now, the second thing, and this is really important, is the reason. Why? Why do we need to so much preach the word of God? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Here's the reason. 
For the time will come when people will no longer tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's why. Now, this has been a problem for a long time, but this has really become a major issue in our culture. Anybody with any spiritual discernment at all could see how people have turned aside from the truth towards myths. I was uh, deeply disturbed this last week. I read something. Um, I have to be really careful here. The people aren't here, but I need to be really careful here. Uh, but, but some people that I know really well lost a, a family member several years back, and I, I preached the funeral of that particular person that passed away. And um, it was hard. It was tough. Tough situation all the way around. And then I read the other day where the mother and the sister and several others have been going to this medium, this spiritual medium in Tulsa that comes around every so often to communicate with the relative, dead relatives of family members to try to give them peace. And then to watch them say the things they said about what they experienced does not line up with the word of God at all. You know, when the, when, the, when the tragedy happened and, the, and the, the, the one passed away, it was, what does the word say? Can, what can, and it was all about the word, and they were quoting scripture. And in, in so many years, it went from that to now we're consulting a medium to try to get peace. Now, I'm not here to shame those people. I'm just telling you that deeply disturbs me because I didn't realize that there was a popular medium coming to Oklahoma and was filling the BOK Center with people so that they could come and get a chance for them to communicate with their dead loved ones, to get a word to bring them peace. I don't need a medium to bring me peace about my dead loved ones because the word of God already did it. The word of God has already told me where my dead loved ones who are in Christ are. It has also told me where, where they are, where I am, and who I'm going to be with one of these days when I go to see Jesus myself. And I don't need that kind of stuff. But our culture is quickly embracing that. And don't think that the churches are immune from that. You'd be amazed at the number of church members that will consort and do those types of things. Students who are in youth ministry that think it's funny. They're Christians, but they think things like a Ouija board and things like that are funny. And they, and they have no idea what they're messing with. No clue. But instead of looking for truth in the word of God, they turn aside to myths and fables. Anything that will tickle their ears and make them hear what they want to hear, that's what they turn to. And it's not just in things like that. It's adults who have been focused on the word of God, and now they, they're following people that don't even really preach the word of God anymore. They've turned aside from the truth of God's word towards fables and myths and things of mankind. And, and that's, that's sad. And because of that, we need to be more, more functioning on preaching the, the, the word of God. As that increases, we ought to preach louder and more often. Because people are turning aside to myths. And here's the thing. 
myths and fables. They are different today than they were in the time of Paul. But the same applies in this. The myths and fables couldn't save people in the time of Paul, and myths and fables can't save people today. Yet that's what people are turning to. So if they're turning to that and our culture is rapidly doing that, then you and I need to preach the, pe- preach the word. Now notice what he said back in verse 2 about this, when we need to do this. He says, to be ready in season and out of season. That means that we need to do this when it's popular or not. And sometimes preaching the word of God is really popular. I'll give you an example. The last time I really remember it being really popular was after 9-11. Churches were filled. Signs went up. God bless America. America bless God. All this, this, and this. And then as the emotions kind of changed and dwindled, the attendance changed and dwindled. And then all of a sudden it wasn't so popular to preach God anymore. I always thought it was amazing that when 9-11 happened, that no, with all the stuff that was happening and all the people that were, God bless the USA, God bless this, God bless that, that none of the atheist organizations rose up in that time frame to fight that. I always thought that was interesting. You want to know why they wouldn't fight it in that time? Because they'd have lost. Because patriotism is tied to God in one way or the other, and when things happen, people are ready to, to, to exalt God and preach God and, and People that don't like it, they may not like it, but they're not going to be very vocal about it. But then as that kind of wanes, those other voices rise up. And in a lot of ways, the church and the people within the church have softened their voice down. When in reality, we need to rise up. We need to rise up anytime, whether or not it's popular or not. And that's why, because people don't want to hear the truth and because they're turning aside to miss. Number three, the third thing this morning I want you to see is there's some essential traits that have to happen. And it's found in verse 5. These are some traits that we have to have. Not only do we have a charge to preach, not only do we have a very clear reason why we should, but look at the traits that have to happen in our our lives to be able to do that. Look at verse 5. He says, so they're turning aside to do this. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist. I want you to just break that down really quick to you. There are three essential traits that he talks about right there. Number one, he says we need to be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. I want you to know something. It is not easy to preach the gospel. And it's a lot more difficult when you don't have self-control. Here's what he means by self-control. There are really two, two aspects of that. When he says to Timothy to practice self-control, he's telling Timothy at least one of these, and I think he's teaching it, telling him both, but one, he needs to practice self-control against sin in his life. Because make no mistake, the world sees our sin. And so to just live like it doesn't exist or live like it's no big deal and go out and live however we want to is is a major deterrent towards evangelism in our world. One thing our speaker at False Creek did say that I did agree with is sometimes the, the world can't hear our gospel because our actions are too loud. Basically what he's saying is the way we live is so much louder than the voices we're using to preach the gospel that they can't hear it. It just sounds like junk. And so he's telling him to be self-controlled against sin. You know, uh, the sh- scripture, I had this argument with a guy at Super Summer a few years back. And I say an argument because it was an argument. 
and he was the speaker at Super Summer. And I, my, part of my job was to take the speaker at Super Summer to dinner if he didn't want what was in the cafeteria, and so I did. Me, him, and the director, we were eating barbecue at Billy Boy's in Shawnee. By the way, if you like barbecue, it's a good place to go. Anyway, um, we were sitting there eating barbecue, and he had made a comment from the pulpit, and he stopped short of the whole truth, and he basically told the students that they were free to sin. And, and so we were, and I was trying to get him to clarify that, and, and I, he said, well, we're, we're, we're free to sin. I said, no, 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 we're free from sin, not free to sin. And he was like, no, it's, it's, we're free to sin. And he tried to get into this whole thing. I said, well, man, you, you just ignored Paul's words in Romans. Because Paul flat out tells us in Romans that when he goes through this whole deal of, yeah, I know what I ought to do and I can't do it. I know what I should do and I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do and I do it. And yet the, the flesh is doing the sinful things, but my spirit agrees that it's wrong. And then he, he, he makes this whole argument and ma- basically brings you to the point where you want to throw your hands up and go, well, how can we do this then? And he makes this statement. He says, what then shall we say? Shall we then just go on and continue in sin? And I love his response. It's a rhetorical question. He said, absolutely not. We are not free to continue to live a lifestyle of sin as a believer. As a matter of fact, if you were at False Creek, our students can tell you, because I took them through the uh, test of their salvation, to say you have no sin in your life is one way of knowing for sure you don't have salvation, to say you don't sin. That's what Scripture says in 1 John 1. But over in chapter 3, he says that anyone who continuously lives in sin doesn't have the truth of God living within him. So yeah, we do have a sin struggle that we still struggle with, but to continuously live in it with no aspect of remorse or conviction is a sign that you don't have the Holy Spirit, which is a sign that you don't have salvation. And so he's telling Timothy... Be self-controlled in your sin because the way you live your life will affect the message you preach. But the second thing about self-control is not only do you need to be self-controlled in your sin, you need to be self-controlled in your retaliation. We need to remember that Timothy and Paul and them were often beaten and, and imprisoned and all kinds of negative things happened to them because of their preaching of the gospel. And yet they didn't retaliate. That's really hard for me because I, I've had pastors tell me horror stories. Like one guy was uh, out in Colorado do, going door to door on a missions trip and a guy threw a cup of hot coffee in his face. He told me that and I was like, he said, how would you have responded? I said, probably not very well, <laughs> I, honestly. And I, I, but that's the point. As a Christian, we have to practice self-control because what's more important? retaliating and making sure he feels the same pain he felt or remembering that God loves that person, died for him, and desires to have a relationship for him, and that person only did it because they're lost anyway. They're not mad at me. They're mad at God. And, and my message is reconciliation to the gospel. That's hard, church. That's, that's really difficult. And I can tell you it's not just difficult out there. It's difficult up here. Because make no mistakes, there are things that do happen to the pastor in a church that make it hard for them not to retaliate. But he tells you, he says, be self-controlled, not only in your sin, but in your retaliation. Remember what's at stake. Remember what's important, the gospel. And what's at stake is people's salvation. So be self-controlled. Then he says, be self-controlled. Then he tells them to have endurance. Don't quit. It's pretty self-explanatory. But we need to endure. And not quit, no matter how hard it gets. It gets hard. 
And then he said this, do the work of an evangelist. What's an evangelist do? Now, we, we define an evangelist as someone who comes to churches and preaches revivals. That is an evangelist per se, but it's not really an evangelist that he's talking about. An evangelist is just simply someone who goes around telling other people about Jesus every opportunity they get. That's a, a, there, there was a guy several years ago um, that stopped coming to churches as an evangelist. He still called himself an evangelist, but he stopped coming to churches unless they could pay him a certain amount. At that point, he stopped becoming, a, he ceased being an evangelist. Because an evangelist goes wherever he can go to preach the gospel. It, it, I mean, I, I think we ought to pay them and all that. I'm just saying that when you make it more about something other than just freely going wherever you can go to tell the gospel to as many people as you can tell, that's what an evangelist is. And you and I get the opportunity to do that every day because you don't need a pulpit and a church service to preach the gospel. So you and I are all evangelists. We're called, according to, Matt, or to Jesus in Matthew 28, to go into all the nations, all of them, all of them, everywhere we go, and, and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are to take the gospel with us as we go, when we walk out these doors, everywhere we go, that's our evangelistic field. That's what we need to do. He's, he's reminding Timothy, don't just preach the gospel when you think it's time to preach the gospel. Do the work of an evangelist. Preach the gospel every opportunity you get. Everyone. It may be in a church service. It may be at a youth service. It may be at a school. It may be in your workplace. It may be in family time. It may be out in a, in a convenience store paying for gas. It, it may be in a restaurant. It, doesn't matter. Wherever you go, wherever the opportunity arrives, you preach the gospel. That is an evangelist. So that's the essentials in order to fulfill our ministry. We have to be self-controlled, we have to have endurance, and we need to evangelize all the time. And look at what the result will be. It's found in verse 8. This is the last thing this morning. It's found in verse 5 through 8. He says, But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work, of an evangelist fulfill your ministry. When we are in understanding that we've been given a charge to preach the word and that we do that whenever the opportunity arises, whether or not it's popular or not, and we do it because people are turning aside from the truth for whatever reason, and we have exercised self-control and we've endured, and we've done the work of an evangelist, then our ministry is fulfilled. And I love how Paul finishes up in verse 6. Look at verse 6. And he starts with the word for. Listen to what he says. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That word for, in the way it's written, it literally means because. Because. Now, now listen to it. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, because I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He's reminding Timothy that his ministry is almost over. His ministry was almost finished. 
he needed to follow through and finish his. And I always thought, if you read 1 Timothy, he, he tells, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Run the race, fight the good fight of faith. And then in the end of 2 Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. The time for my departure is close. So you fulfill your ministry. All of us have a time when our ministry is fulfilled. But that time is not until we go to be with Jesus. Our ministries will change in and out during our times on this earth. Sometimes we're called to do this ministry or that ministry or to help here or to serve there or to do that. And if you want to talk about it from a pastor perspective, sometimes they're called to this church and then they're called to this church or they're called from this ministry into this ministry or into that ministry, however you want to look at it. But all of us have a ministry to fulfill. And ministry is not done until you go to be with Jesus. You never retire from ministry. You never walk away from ministry. Your ministries change, but they never end until you go to be with Jesus. I told my wife this, and I think it ties in with what Paul's saying, and I'll close. I told my wife this the other day. We were listening to a song on the radio, and the song was talking about, I don't want to leave a legacy. I just want them only Jesus. That, I think that's the title of the song, only Jesus. I don't want to leave a legacy, only Jesus. And it reminded me of a quote, and I don't remember who said it, so don't give me credit for it. I'm telling you right now, I didn't come up with it. I don't remember who said it, but I love it. He said, the goal of every believer, in particular pastors, should be to preach the word and die forgotten. Preach the word, die forgotten. It's not about me. It's not about anybody else. It's about God. It's about his word. Preach the word, die forgotten. 